Hi. We worship with gifts because he's given us a gift. One of those gifts is scripture. And the next part of our worship service this morning is we're going to read the scripture passage for the sermon. Um, that can be found in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 and 3. Um, that can be found on page 1787 in your pew Bible. Um, before I read that, I'm also going to read Philippians 1, 27 and 28, referencing last week. So, um, so you can have that as well. So Philippians 1, 27 and 28. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you only, or come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one Spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. The Philippians one from verse four. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are in the book of life. So where the Lord written for his people. Thanks, Femi. <clears throat> so a few years ago, we did a conference for the regional church called the Sexuality Everywhere Conference. And the logic of that was, what is something that is really on people's minds that the biblical or scriptural or, or great tradition Christian understanding is like not understood at all? Where there's the biggest gap. And that if people got to hear what the gospel teaches about this really important subject in their life, it would, if they believed it, it would create freedom and restoration, really good results in their life. And at that point, we thought the confusion over sexuality was the most salient thing in that year. Um, this year, um, we decided that it was the concept of healing. A lot of people feel really broken, really hurt, really anxious. A lot of people are turning to pharmaceuticals and counselors, like some of them should. Um, but they, what, what they're missing is like the 85% of the rest of what's available to human beings um, in terms of God's wider vision for healing through Christ, through Christ's resurrection, through how he heals us in the church and in the family of God and in lots of other ways. And so um, we're putting on a conference this year that's gonna be March 10th and 11th, um, which is gonna be called Made Whole. And um, we really want to encourage you guys to sign up for it. You can do it on the website right now. And I want to show you a, a video that's going to describe a little bit about the conference. The other person in the video with me is Jill Reese, if you don't know her. Jill has worked at our church for seven and nine years. I, I lose count. And <clears throat> she is the point person for the healing ministry we started over the last year called Oaks, which is designed to help people with like sort of persistent problems in their life spiritually that feel like they need more to help heal and grow and be strengthened in those. It creates an opportunity for them um, where they might feel really uncomfortable just in a small group dealing with some of those issues. So I have, I have tons of confidence in Jill. She's earned her place and voice at our church. Um, and so she'll be, in, she'll be in this video too. So why don't you watch it and then hopefully you'll be enormously inspired to sign up right now during my sermon on your smartphone. My name is Jill Reese, and I'm the founder and director of the Oaks Ministry. My name is Nick Gibson. I am mostly the senior pastor at High Point Church in Madison, Wisconsin. Oaks exists to equip the local church to be a rehabilitative community for people who are in the healing process. 
The healing is one of the biggest metaphors in the Christian gospel. It's an enormous part of what human beings need in every generation. It's a critical need, and so people are really into it. And so it's a time to speak the church's truth in a way we have it. The Made Whole Conference is a conference on the joy and progress in the whole of healing. And so our goal with this conference is to zoom out and give a picture of the healing process. But what does it look like to heal in, as part of our discipleship and as part of our relationship with God and other people? The Bible talks a lot about things without using diagnostic or psychological language. It just tells us things that we do structurally and spiritually in our lives that have enormous psychological effects, enormous healing effects if we do it right and in faith. But it doesn't say, here's what it does to your serotonin. Like it doesn't, it doesn't do that. And what we want to do in this conference is create a capacious or larger, a more whole picture of what healing looks like in scripture, in the body of Christ, and integrated with, with good psychological knowledge, and also integrated with each other. So we don't have like secular psychology over here and this kind of spiritual practice over here and this belief in salvation over there. But for us, because God relates to everything, it's all one thing to us. And figuring out how to see it as one thing allows us to utilize everything God has given us. When we're talking about healing, we're talking mostly about psychological healing. Um, we'll be talking about mental health, like anxiety and depression at this conference. Um, we'll also be talking about trauma and also relational dynamics. But psychological healing is so interconnected with physical healing, with emotional healing. We're whole beings, we're whole human beings. And so the healing process as it unfolds over time will impact our, our emotions, our relationships, our physical bodies, and our faith. So Jesus was known as a healer. He also released people from demonic oppression, which is always coordinate with mental illness. Whenever he exercised a demon, he also was healing somebody from some kind of mental illness, as well as the fact that every exorcism and every healing that Jesus did, he didn't do for everybody. And when you ask the question, why does the loving God who sought to save everyone not heal or exercise every demon? And the answer is because every healing and every exorcism was a sign of something bigger. We are really trying to approach healing in an integrated way. Look at how God has created us to heal because of how we as humans break from sin and the curse. I think that there's an enormous wealth of healing capacity within the local church and within the gospel of Jesus Christ that if you only interact with healing on the level of psychological or secular analysis, you're missing multiple levels of human analysis and realms of healing and therefore resources for healing that are available to us as human beings. You should come to this conference if you have really sought healing and you've felt like you haven't really gotten to the place you need to get to. Uh, I think this conference will really open up our vision of what healing encompasses and it sort of just gives you a whole bunch of ideas of where to start. Most Christians have been swimming in the kiddie pool end of Christianity for their whole Christian life. It doesn't matter how much time you have in the pool, if you don't have time in the deep end actually learning to swim, learning to believe, understand, apply, and participate in what God has given us for healing, you can be a Christian and go to church for decades and not experience Christian healing. And frankly, we want to introduce the church and the non-church who come to this conference to that great tradition, those enormous resources, and the Christ-given capacity through the Holy Spirit for human healing. I hope you come to it. There's, when we uh, tried to get volunteers, when we did the Sexuality Everywhere Conference, we did a lot of work to get enough volunteers to put on the conference. And when we tried to get volunteers for this conference, we did like one, one lunch and we got all of them.
I don't know if that's indicative of the interest around this topic relative to the other one, um, but it seems like there's a lot of interest, and I just, I hope you'll be involved and participate, and I think that one of the ways to talk about Jesus in our culture is to talk about how he heals us. Of course, that's going to include everything else about Jesus that people may not be initially as interested in, but as you realize that all those things are connected to how he reconciles us to God and how he heals us and redeems us, people can become interested in all the things Jesus is interested in. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's dive in. So over the next eight weeks or seven from now, we're doing a series on the last chapter of Philippians because we've been preaching through that book and specifically how this chapter teaches us about what the church is, therefore about what the local church is, and therefore about what this local church, High Point Church is. Does that make sense? And so that's kind of what we're doing right now. And so I have a lot to say about this, and many miles to go, and not a lot of time to do it. So we're, we're going to get right at it. Okay, so please put your phone away and drink your caffeinated beverage. Like I said last week, every Christian in every generation, every iteration of the church has to decide for themselves whether or not they're going to build the church, the church visible, or abandon her. Everybody has to decide that for themselves. It's sometimes a difficult decision for people because a lot of people have experienced things. um, I'm sorry, before I go on, I don't have to come back to this slide. Um, There are a number of talks I did on the local church that some of the younger staff listened to and said they were really, really helpful. I did them at a college to college students, so apparently they're very hip and now, even though I did them 10 years ago. And so we put them on a The Local Church podcast that you can access through the website and listen to the content. That. It's five talks. So you may be interested in that. Go ahead and listen to it. Um, but one of the reasons why some people say, well, maybe I, should, I, maybe I just want to abandon the church, is because there's a lot of abandonable things that church, people in the church do. I mean, there's human beings here, and they, they treat people ways that are not great. And— um, There is reason for that, but also some of the greatest things I've experienced, I have also experienced in the body of Christ. But the reason why I chose to serve the body of Christ vocationally and why I've been part of her since my conversion was not because of the quality of my experiences, but because of Jesus' convictions and belief about the local church, what he thinks she is, right? In scripture, Jesus says, and the apostles teach that the body of Christ, that the Christians that make up the church are the body of Christ himself. There is dear to Jesus as my hand is to me. My whole body is to me, which is pretty dear. That the church is the bride of Christ. He's as dear to Jesus as some, a man who rejoices to marry a woman and make her his wife. He, in in, in uh, 1 Peter 2, it says that we're a living temple. We're like a temple made out of stones that are alive, that are sacred enough to house the very presence of God and call the nations to it. That we're like a family, truly brothers and sisters to each other in a way that is even deeper and more profound than our familial systems, which are deep and profound. And in Philippians, the metaphor that the apostle uses besides brother and sister is an infantry unit that fights together side by side, standing firm and contending for something. That they, that they depend on each other and are as loyal as people who fight side by side in close infantry combat. And as I've talked to people over the course of my ministry, including people who've literally been in military service and seen action. Like, I've talked to guys who have said, there is, I've never experienced an intimacy in my life, a camaraderie and a loyalty, like I did with the men I fought with. There is no other experience in human life as close as that. And these were married men. And so, like, when you understand how Jesus feels about the church, when the apostles say, they are the sheep of God who Jesus bought with his own blood, 
right? You have to ask yourself, like, like what do you, how do you feel about the church? What do you think it is? And can that vision direct you? And so what the apostle says in verses 27 and 28 in chapter 1 that we talked about last week is, therefore what we're called to be as the church is those who in Christ stand firm in one spirit, contending like we are one man or one unit fighting together for the gospel, unafraid. Now, um, what that means is, is that there's, to, to contend together and stand firm together means that there's like a oneness. But what happens when oneness crashes? Right, besides like being like walking upright, Perhaps what humans might be known for next, most famously, is our ability to create conflict. We're really good at making conflicts, and we're really good at following through on conflicts. I mean, it'd be so, if what we did with conflict, we could get as virtues into the rest of our lives, we'd be highly successful people. You know what I mean? But we're really good at making problems and then holding grudges. We're known for it. We do it in our personal lives. We do it with people we're close to. We do it culturally. We do it like intercontinentally, and we do it on the level of full-scale war, right? <clears throat> That's what human beings are like. That is common to the human experience. And when we become Christians, it doesn't just magically end. Even the community of Jesus is going to be one that faces a lot of conflict, right? And so Sometimes Christians say, you know, Jesus prayed the high priestly prayer in John 17, and he said, Father, make them one as you and I are one. And like Christians, they're supposed to have oneness and unity. And like, isn't it a shame that there isn't? Here's the problem, okay? If you believe in the purpose of oneness in the church or unity or concord as a, just a belief, it becomes an ideology. And what you mainly do with it is you complain. Do you understand? You mainly just complain. You'll be like, isn't it a shame? And the churches are so bad. Well, okay, listen. Unity or oneness or concord, fighting like one soldier contending for the gospel, is an achievement. We have to build it. We have to fight for it. To, to have oneness so that we can spiritually fight like we should, we have to fight for oneness. It doesn't just happen. It's constantly unhappening. You realize that? Even in the church, the natural flow of things with humans is for us to get angry at each other and hold grudges and be upset and not grow closer together. And we live in a culture, friends, that is increasingly fractious and prone to division and anger and separation and much less capable and willing to engage in the disciplines of reconciliation and its attending virtues. And increasingly less capable of forming relationships that won't erupt in conflict and less capable of being the kind of people capable of bringing reconciliation. And so what must we be in these times? We must excel, in particularly in the areas of the sins of our generation. Does that make sense? And there are some Christians right now that believe that the main duty in the church is to create more friction. And I, I, I think that's a misreading of the time. I think that we're, we're running to a flood with fire extinguishers when we behave that way. Now, to try to get this straight, there's maybe four—there's so many things I could teach about this. I really wish we could do this for a couple of hours. Your butt will not handle that. So let's just do four from just these three verses. So these are three verses that most people just treat as like throwaway verses. There's a couple of people mentioned. It's at the end of this epistle. We're basically wrapping up. And yet, in just these three verses, there's at least four like very serious like affirmations of like what it takes to achieve oneness, okay? And then we'll talk about a couple of verses in that relative to the local church. The first is, contending for unity is fueled by emotional vision. Contending for unity is fueled by emotional vision. Emotion wouldn't be enough. Vision isn't enough. 
because it's not emotional necessarily, right? In one sense, a vi- your vision is an emotional connection to a, pi- a, a picture of what you really want to happen. In that sense, it's emotional. But you see, if you look at this passage, listen to what he says. He comes to the end of these three chapters. There's all this, like, all this discussion about what it means to believe the gospel. He says this, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. In this way, right, he's referring to the whole— previous three chapters of the book. Why did he write all this? And he he says, I wrote this because you're my brothers and sisters in this shared cosmic family that we all belong to, and I love you. Like, you and I are connected, and I'm committed to you, and we're bonded together. And you matter to me personally so much, so much so as as I sit in this prison in Rome, I, like, my, my heart hurts thinking about how we're separated. And I, I hope that I will live long enough to see your faces again on this earth so that there's something that I could do that would make your life and your spiritual life better, he says in chapter 1. Like, do, do you see that idea here? This isn't cold. This is no transactional relationship. Like, we often don't have feelings like this in our families and in our marriages. He loves them. And our absence of that depth of emotion— is not something to just be ashamed of, but I feel like the absence of that depth of emotion in a lot of our lives actually should be evoking in us curiosity. Why don't I feel anything? Why don't I love like that? Because a lot of people just think they're just not like that. That's just not my temperament. That's not true. That's not the answer. I'm not going to take 35 minutes to tell you the answer, but that isn't the answer. Something has happened to you in this culture, in the society in which you live, and the way you've dealt with certain things, and it's produced a personal experience of yourself in which you feel very little, and you don't feel it at the appropriate intensity, and that has to be healed. But you see the passion here? And then he says about them, you are my joy, right? Thinking about my relationship with you and who you are and how we're related that way, like, is my happiness. Like, I'm, I'm partly happy. Now, you can be like, well, Nick, that's emotionally unhealthy. You shouldn't rely on anybody for your happiness. He doesn't say he relies on them. In five verses, he's going to say that he knows what it's like to be content in any situation. It's not psychological dependence. But the greatest pleasures in life are supposed to come from other people. It's not exotic vacations. You're supposed to be the greatest joy in my life. Each other, us. Like the greatest, remember, ever heard this? The greatest toy you can give a child is a brother or a sister, right? Like, like we're unrepeatable, image-bearing creatures. Like, you matter the most of anything in the world and should, therefore, to me. And I should recognize that value and to actually take pleasure in it. And he's like, you guys are my joy, right? And how many, how many of us, like, our joy is in, like, food or, like, this meme that's amusing me for the moment, or this video game that, like, I get to win for 30 seconds and feel great about myself. Like, our—it's so paltry what pleases us. You know what I mean? And he says that they're his crown. Like, the result of his life. Like, what he hopes will be, be like, my life was worthwhile because X. What is that X? And he's like, you guys are that. You're my crown. Right? Like, you read those verses, it's really easy to read over them. But do you see the point? Like, 
his willingness to die, to live as Christ and to die as gain, his willingness to make what the sacrifices necessary to love the others in his life, to let people go or to receive them to themselves, all of those things come from an emotional vision. He loves, he cares, he desires, he longs. These people are his joy and his crown. You see, there's a sense in which, friends, unless, until we find that emotional gravity that comes from Christ, it's when the, the cross is not a cliche to us that we repeat, but is this action that wrecks us inside. We can't do any of this stuff consistently, especially not in the things that are the most terrifying and the most difficult. And frankly, for a lot of us, facing conflict is one of the most difficult things we do because we're terrified of conflict. And if our desire for unity and oneness isn't driven by an emotional vision— we're just not going to play ball. We're not going to be there. We're not going to be willing to do what it takes when the moments come. The second thing is, is that the gospel is the basis for oneness. When I was in school in the 1990s, I know, um, one of the catchwords was diversity, and that really hasn't changed to today. You'll hear people say things like, diversity is our strength. Our strength is in diversity, don't you see? And that's true, right? It's also false right? Diversity is what gets us to argue with each other and dispute things and to kill each other and to hate each other and to tear things apart and to tear everything down. Diversity is one of the worst things about being a human being, too. And so um, how do we overcome the conflict created by our diversity so that our diversity can, in fact, be our strength? You see, in that sense, diversity being for our good is kind of like love being the final virtue, does that make sense? In order to love, Second Peter says, you have to have faith, and then you have to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness. And when you master those virtues and how they all work together, and you can really deliver on them, then you'll be capable of actually loving another human being. Because it's going to be difficult, and it takes a lot of things at the same time to really live for the true good of another person. And if you really want to love people, you have to grow into that. So when people say, well, the world just needs more love. No, the world needs more of all of the virtues bound together in formed character so that we become people capable of love, and then there will be more love in the world. What must you pursue to get the end you want? Pursue it without a foundation. It's like building a house on sand. It just washes away. You can try to be loving, and before you know it, you'll be young. Have you ever had a thing like you go to that person in your life that you just fought with, and you try to reconcile, and wouldn't you know it five minutes later you're yelling at each other? Because you went with good intentions to work it out. But then the flesh took over, and you bought on the thing that they slipped, and you decided to take offense, whether that an overlook offense, and you didn't say what you'd planned to, and there you are. It wasn't your intention that failed. It was your capacity, your moral and spiritual capacity that failed. That has to grow. That strength has to grow. You see, and therefore, taking advantage of diversity and making it our strength is a form of love, and it's one of the more difficult operations within the difficult operation of love. So it's love even harder. I'm 100% committed, 100% committed to diversity being our strength. I'm, I just refuse to be some, like, mindless canary who can sing that proposition without recognizing what it's going to take. And I don't just mean racially. Between genders, between temperaments, between economic and educational classes, between like feely Christians who like to sing more and people who like to study, like every way that we're different, you realize that it's going to take the capacity to love 
the crowning of all the virtues working together in mature courage to produce, and in the ladder of loves and their difficulties, diversities up their ways. Why do you think Paul thinks it's so profound in Ephesians 2 to say, don't you realize that the beauty of the gospel is, is that while we were God's enemies, he died for us? Emotional vision. He died for us. So that we could become the workmanship of God, justified by faith alone. And then what's the result of that? Therefore, the gospel makes one people breaking down all the dividing walls of hostility. Why use that as an example? Because that's the impossible example. What's the most impossible thing to heal in the human experience? The answer is division. Division with who? Division of people who are different from each other, i.e. diverse groups of people. The thing that is so profound about the Christian faith that is if we lived it, if we perceived to seek holiness, if we wanted it badly, and we pursued love in its fullest sense, we could do the impossible. What's the impossible? Making diversity our strength rather than our division. In the church, we need to—we can say diversity will be our strength. I think we should say it will be our strength rather than it is, because it isn't by nature. Diversity is our division, but it can be our strength. And especially in a culture that wants to believe in the good of diversity, one of the greatest signs we could show is it happening. But oneness, including the oneness of real diversity, is an achievement. It's not a belief. You understand? Everybody in this room could believe diversity is a good. So much so that we could complain about it when it doesn't happen. And it wouldn't make a bit of difference other than give us the self-righteousness necessary to not pursue it actually. Right? Which is wonderful. Just like, just like revenge, it's just a warm blanket, you know what I mean? But that's not what we're called to. And so therefore, if we're going to do that, how do you make a diverse group of people? One, and the answer is uh, by some content that is uniting and emotionally envisioning. Because when Paul turns to these two women, he says, listen, you guys, you're divided. Become of one mind, right? You've got to agree with each other. That is fine unity. But what he says is, be of one mind to these two women. That is, there's some content by which we can be united with each other. We can agree together, even if it doesn't solve all of our questions. It gives us enough agreement to be a foundation for us to create reconciliation, for us to love one another, for us to do the good, while we sort out the other questions together with a certain amount of charity and humility. And so we need to recognize that, yeah, we're working for humility, but how? We have to be clear on the content. And so Paul writes this whole letter. So God gives us this whole book. And so studying the scriptures and studying Christian theology is not just an academic exercise that we do, and it doesn't please God. It pleases God when we learn stuff and then do it. Does that make sense? But we do need to study it so we do know what we agree on, because Paul, saying, Paul wrote them content in the first three chapters because content matters. You got to know the content. We just got to realize that the content isn't the thing. Does that make sense? Knowing how to make for reconciliation the basis of our unity doesn't make us united. We have to achieve that. Does that make sense? 
Don't ever let your knowledge of the faith satisfy your longing for the results of the faith. Does that make sense? Okay. That doesn't mean that the biblical calling with people who aren't Christians is that we have to have the same oneness with them. In fact, the Bible says we can't. If you're a believer and you really know the dynamics of the gospel and you believe them fully, you will find that there is a natural division between you and somebody who has not submitted themselves to Jesus entirely. So does that make them our enemy? And the answer is no. Inside the church, our pursuit is oneness, to be of one mind, to have concord with each other, to have unity. Outside the church, what the Bible teaches, is for us to give other people what they're due. We sometimes just call that justice. But it says that we should be peacemakers, to the extent to which it depends on us to live at peace with all people, it says in Romans 12. Peacemakers. We should give other people what they are due as human beings. That is justice, right? And we should act for the flourishing of the people we live among, right? So we live in Madison. We have a certain division of faith or belief with people who aren't Christians, but we share the roads and the economy and our response to things like crime or politics. That's all shared. And so we should have to do whatever good we can because our destinies, naturally speaking, in the city are bound with our non-Christian neighbors. Does that make sense? And if we can do those three things and in the church be unified, we can be both a participant and a sign to the culture in which we live. Does that make sense? The third thing is um, contending for oneness requires skillful discipline. Skillful discipline. Like, it's actually not easy to create reconciliation in disputes. It's not easy. People behave like it's easy all the time. It's not easy. It's hard. It's hard work. One of the hardest things I've done over the course of my ministry life is to try to get better and better and better at, at dealing with and handling disputes. And to create fewer of them. I'm trying to do both of those, actually. Right? And so what I, what I found is, is that um, it requires action. You have to get in there. But it requires the activity of both graciousness, being kind and careful in what you say and do, and you have to be honest. Not, does that mean you have to say everything? You have to deal with the thing, and as, as focused as you can say on the thing, the better. And not the conflict that you had, but what the conflict is really about. St. John Chrysostom didn't want to become a bishop or a pastor in the fifth century. And one of the reasons he gave was he, because being a pastor is to be a spiritual surgeon. It's to cut in order to heal. And he's like, that's the hardest thing you can possibly do to cut to heal. But that's what dealing with conflict requires. It's spiritual surgery. It's relational surgery. When you try to deal with a conflict, you are engaging in spiritual and interpersonal surgery. You have to cut in order to grapple with the thing, but you have to do it in a way as to maximize the other person's likelihood of success. So think about what Paul does with these women, right? On one level, he incredibly honors them. Think about this, right? Here's these two women. They're in Philippi. They're having a famous enough dispute that Paul knows about it in a prison in Rome, okay? And he writes to them. He writes all the stuff. The first thing he says personally in, about the church is he names these two women, right? And he says, listen, he says it right after what verse? You're my brothers and sisters. You're my love. I long for you. You're my crown and my joy. Right? And then he says about these two women, he uses the same word he uses in chapter 1 and verse 27, when he says that we as the church are these people who contend 
like one man for the faith of the gospel. That's like his key thesis. No matter what happens, even no matter if they're going to kill you, we're unified within, and we are honest towards those without to live as Christ and die as gain. I will live for the glory of Jesus Christ, chapter one, right? That's my witness outward as a sign. And together, chapter two, we have the attitude of Christ Jesus. We have no selfish ambition or vain conceit, but we are united together. Like one people, we contend for the gospel. That's who we are. And then he says, these two women who what? Contended with me by my side. These two women contended with me. It's only two, two times he uses the word. It's not one of Paul's favorite words. He says basically in the, in the battle for the gospel, to stand firm and to live fully for Jesus, no matter who stood against me, when I was in Philippi, Euodia and Syntyche were like the warriors on my right and my left. The ones who protected my vitals and my sides. As I stood, they stood with me. They, I, they matter so, these two women matter so much to me, right? And then he says, you know Clement? Nobody knows who Clement is, but they knew who Clement was. And Clement was a big enough deal, apparently, in Philippi that dropping his name was a thing. And Paul puts these two women in the same group as him. He says, you know, Clement and the other, other men who labor with me, whose names are in the book of life, these women are like them. You see, see how he's like, he's kind of talking about how they're a big deal. I care. I, not just that they're like a big deal positionally, they're a big deal to me. Right? I love them. They were in the thick of it with me. I'll never forget that. Right? And then he also says publicly, y'all need to sort it out. So he says twice, he uses the verb twice. He says, Euodia, I beseech you. I beg you. Syntyche, I beg you. Right? Those aren't throwaway verbs. He, he individually begs both of them. Euodia, I beg you. I beg you. Syntyche, I beg you. Be of one mind together. Right? A personal, but also public. It's in the written letter to the church. I mean, can you imagine being these two in heaven and be like, yeah, we're in the Bible, you know? <laughs> There's people in the Bible worse than us, you know? It's like, but like, you know, and yet this is, so do you see how he does both? Paul goes out of his way to give them the best chance possible to not be caught up in their pride or to increase their anger, but to honor them publicly, right? And then also embarrass them. Do you see how he, he like honors and embarrasses them to create the best possible chance, expressing how much he cares about them, how much he personally loves them, and how he gets on his own knees with them, taught them, and begs them, I beseech you, please do this. But he does it publicly in front of the church and says, church, we all have to be one. And then he lays out the theological foundation they can't say no to in chapters one, two, and three. You see? You see the point? Do you see the skill there, the spiritual skill? Do you see the cut for healing that Paul makes? Do you see how good a surgeon he was? That's spiritual maturity. We can all be like that. Maybe not that good, but we can all be like that. That's the goal. He could have said, you guys, I'm so disappointed in you. Like after all we've been through, this is how you thank me? He could have taken it personally, right? Can you imagine what he was saying about them in the shower? You guys, I can't believe you're doing this. I did so much for you. Remember I did that Bible study at your house and we had turkey and like, but he, he, he did it for their good. That they are good. Right? Okay. Fourth is contending for oneness involves everybody. You see how here it's like he appeals to them first, 
But then he appeals to this, this person just called my fellow bond servant, or my, like my fellow um, co-worker. He, the person is unnamed. It, it's probably a pastor in the church, or an elder in the church of Philippi, and everybody knew who it was. But he, like, he calls in a third person. And he also says this in front of the whole church. He's like, listen, you guys, these two need to get along. He gets them personal help. He creates a context that unity is valued. These women need to get along. Right? It, ta- it takes everybody. And um, there's at least three ways this is true in Scripture. The first is, is that the priority for reconciliation is on you in the Bible. The, the Bible says that one of the, the most specific acts of worship that take priority over everything else is for you to create reconciliation with people you're sideways with. It says in Matthew 5, if you know a brother and sister has something against you and you're literally worshiping God, stop worshiping God. It's really, I think it's the only place in the Bible where you're told to stop worshiping God. Generally speaking, worshiping God is thought of as a positive thing in the Bible, right? Do you get the sarcasm there? Okay. And to say stop worshiping God, to do this other thing, do you see that? Do you see what he's doing there? Jesus is doing there? He's saying this thing is really important. He says, leave your offering, and you go and you talk to that person, and when that person over, because why? One is, it's really important, and like if God is our father, right, metaphorically, then two of his kids fighting is way more important than, than one of them telling them that they love him. Like if one of my kids was like being really awful to my other kid, and they, their relationship was broken, and the kid, one of the, one of the kids was like, dad, but you're fantastic. I love you so much. Like, do I enjoy that? Yes. But do I think it's way more important that kid go tell the other kid that they're sorry? Yes, I do. And would I feel much more honored and loved by this kid if they went and apologized rather than tell me I'm fantastic, which is true? Yes! That's what I want, because as a, a father, do I want my kids to love me? Yeah! But do I want my kids to get along? That's so much more important. So stop worshiping. Go find that person and work it out. It's on you, right? Partly because reconciliation is done in, in accordance with the principle of subsidiarity. Everything is done at the most local possible level. Like, what would it be like if I literally had to sort out every conflict in the church? Right? That's what happens in Exodus 18. Like, Moses is like trying to sort out every conflict for like the whole people of Israel. And his father-in-law, who's not even part of the people of God, is like, Moses, this is like really stupid. Right? You need to like break this up and get this handled like in the clan level, in the family level. And just like the harder cases can kind of move up to you, which is how our court system is set up to this day, except just more, much more corrupt. Right? And so like this is, this is what they did because you, one person at the top, even if they're the best decision maker, if they decide 700 decisions, they're going to get a lot of those wrong because it's too many decisions to make well. It's better to get a B-level decision maker handling three cases than an A-level decision-maker handling 700. This is why stuff has to get delegated in the church. Sometimes you'd be like, well, I wish Nick was doing this, because then it'd be better. Yeah, except I'd be doing 700 things, and it would actually be worse than the person who's doing it. You see, things have to be handled on a subsidiary level at the most local-to-you possible level, including reconciliation. And lastly, in the whole environment of the church— Everybody has to believe and share in a corporate emotional unity in one spirit that we value honest unity. Honest unity. Not fake unity. Real unity. Are we going to have arguments? Yes. Will there be disagreements? Yes, there are. Do we need to let people say what they really think? Yes, we do. Though they should do it with kindness as best they can. But we value unity. When you—if you stand up at a congregational meeting and you rip into me, that's okay. If it's— you're cutting to heal the church. Does that make sense? If you're cutting to heal, it's welcome. 
welcome. But if you're not, Paul says in Titus, right? Warn a divisive person once, and then one more time, and then have nothing to do with them. They are self-condemned. We always have to look at our hearts and say, am I pursuing the good in a certain kind of conflict, which is for the good like Jesus would? Or am I being divisive because I like to be right or whatever, I like to complain, right? If you want to read more passages about that, great. Let's do a couple of these relative to High Point Church. I had, no, I, I had no intention of exposing those passages. Just You can go to the website and find that slide later and study those passages if you're spiritual. Okay, um, so what kind of church is High Point Church going to be then, right? And the first is, is that we're going to take an active approach to conflict. You understand? Um, it turns out that if you take an active biblical approach to conflict and you learn to be skillful in it and the other things I've just said, um, you can achieve substantial oneness. There will always be conflict here and there, but you can achieve, achieve a lot of substantial oneness and you can get a lot done. Second, resolving conflict produces less conflict. I was listening to somebody the other day who said, I have a very um, sensitive temperament and I hate conflict. The reason I learned how to get in there and handle conflict was because I wanted less of it. And I realized if I didn't handle it now, it was just going to get worse and there was just going to be more of it. So as somebody who hated conflict, I decided to get in there and to handle it well so that there would be so much less of it in my life. Plus, if you're a person that handles conflict well, people conflict with you less. You get a reputation, right? Even if you're kind, people still don't want to like, like harm you because you know you'll come to be like, hey, are you okay? And they don't even want that, you know? And also, it, um, conflict resolution initiates growth. I mean, I mean, think about this. Why do, we, why do we have conflicts, right? James says it's because we like bite and like attack each other because of our selfish desires. Like sin that's in us, indwelling sin, produces conflict. And overcoming conflict is incredibly morally and spiritually difficult. It's a great exertion in which we learn a lot about ourselves, right? And especially when we bring in other people and they can tell us, help us figure out what's going on. It's really difficult for us and it hurts a lot. And actually hardly anything is as productive of growth as actually engaging in good conflict. So the thing that Jesus demands that we do is actually personally for our good as well. The second thing is, is that um, any leader at High Point Church has to be a resolver, not a revolver, which some people feel like is a Christian virtue, a resolver, okay? You, if, so think about when you vote for an elder, or you think about voting for a new pastor or whatever, ask the question, if I had a dispute, some kind of thing that I couldn't resolve with another believer, would I be willing to let this person enter in and be the faithful yokeman to help me resolve it? And the answer should be yes. And remember, in, in the statements about elders, it says a number of times they must be temperate. And that's not mainly focused on the consumption of substances. It's mainly focused on their, their resolution of their anger. People with anger issues can't be Christian leaders until they resolve their anger issues, which are resolvable, right? All right, so elders have to, and leaders have to have the courage and the skill to resolve conflict. Some people have the skill, but not the courage. Some people have the courage, not the skill, right? Third is, our church is committed to tearing down dividing walls of hostility in relationship to Ephesians 2, as I spoke of earlier. Um, human conflict is predictable in lots of ways, but it's not inevitable in the church. This, the, Jesus and his apostles teach us unambiguously in the scriptures that we have the ability to live in oneness. 
and we have the ability to do it across all of the natural dividing walls of hostility among human beings. We have that ability. Everything we need for life and godliness is in our hands. And so what that means is, is that I, nor our leadership, nor our church can simply accept the realities of such divisions when there's something we can do about them. Especially when, when that unity is a necessary witness and sign that our non-Christian neighbors actually need to really be believers in the gospel. Because the fairy tale in their minds is a society that flourishes, that is totally diverse, and like everybody's working together in that diversity and creating flourishing together. That's their fairy tale. Whenever something else gets you to the story that you're looking for, that thing is really compelling to you. So to a lot of our secular neighbors who through the rational approach would never accept that Jesus died and rose from the dead, if we demonstrated to them that the work of the Spirit in the church, in us, was producing a beloved community of different people who were truly diverse, who knew how to love each other, and were creating flourishing together inside the local church, that would be the proof that they believed. Do you understand? It'll just cost you even more than sharing the gospel with them. And that is something we are pursuing inside this local church, regionally among other churches, right? And this includes things like generations. I don't know if you've read some of the new stuff on Gen Z, but the generational divide between non-Gen Z and Gen Z is going to be one of the most difficult we've had in several generations. It's already difficult enough loving the young people and not yelling at them to get off of our lawn, okay? Like, but Gen Z is going to be particularly different because they grew up native digital and it's affected their worldview incredibly and how they relate emotionally. And that generational divide is going to be even stronger. And we don't have, we don't get to go, get off my lawn. I don't want you young people around here. No, like we're going to give them this church at some point. It's, it's going to be really, and we have to find a way to find unity with them. It's true for gender, depending on some things. Um, most churches are 65% women or more. I don't know if you know this. Because churches, kind of like education, has been set up for women for decades. I think it has something to do with the emotional unhealthiness of male preachers. I think it also has to do with, like, women, I think, are naturally more communicative and communicative and like religious groups better, and men want to go fishing on Sunday mornings sometimes. Um, but one of the, what, that's one of the reasons why there's a number of things I do, a number of things I spend time on, and I spend more money on in our church budget on trying to reach men. It's one of the reasons why I don't pretend that women are like these perfect creatures and men are these disgusting things that just want sex. I don't, I don't play into that nonsense. Women are just as sinful as men, just in different ways, and I'm not going to pretend that they're better, and I shouldn't. And part of the reason for that is, is that I want half men and half women in the church. And I, I will spend more money on men's ministry. And is that sexist? Yes, it is. But you know why I do it? Because women proportionally have lifestyles where they can gather more, and they do it more naturally. Whereas men, we have to like more intentionally focus on like gathering together and finding them. And one of the results of that is, is that in the last 13 years I pastored this church, our male-female differential has been less than 3%. That's unheard of in American churches. And sometimes you women are like, why did he say it like that? And like you're literally bearing the burden of doing that work to try to keep us together as genders. And it's getting worse. There's more male-female hatred than ever before, probably in America, because everybody, both sexes now think that they're getting a bad deal. Does that make sense? For a while, it was mostly women that thought they were getting a bad deal, and then men were kind of like, wait a second. We're getting a bad deal too now. Everybody's getting a bad deal. And so now, there's a lot of conflict, and we 
can be people where men and women can live together and marry each other and have families and don't think that they're getting a bad deal. And revere their spouse as a woman or as a man and know that it's not equal, but it's a context of flourishing, right? And then this is true for ethnicity and race and nationality and language. I could do a 45-minute on this, but there are some sermons you can see in the past for this, but like we are committed not just to being part of a diverse regional church. Our church spends hundreds of thousands of dollars some years and most years encouraging and growing churches cross-ethnically and internationally. Thousands of churches in India have been impacted by this church. Um, immigrant churches in our town, churches of predominantly other ethnicities, right? Our church is about 13% non-white, right, right now, which is actually pretty diverse for the west side of Madison. But like we, we connect with other churches that are majority-minority churches, and we do a lot of stuff that's really helpful, I think, in those churches in, in different kinds of partnerships. But that, it's not enough to only say, well, we do this in other churches. Like that's going to—we want it to come increasingly home to roost here. We want to be a place where no matter who you are, where, you, where you're from, or what your ethnicity is, or what your background is, or what your heart language is, the body of Christ at this local church is for you. Does that make sense? And what we'd like to do is actually reach people of other ethnicities who don't go to church. We're not trying to empty out minority churches and try to do like something here and like make it so Latino or African-American brothers and sisters can't fund their churches and their ministries. That's not our goal. Our goal is to reach people who don't believe from all kinds of different backgrounds. And yes, people of other backgrounds will sometimes reach them better. That's true. But that doesn't mean that we don't take our shot. You know? Especially when that is actually the story that a lot of like non-believing, highly progressive and secular white Madisonians, that's the story they want to be part of and that will affect their heart in a positive way. There's like multiple layers. Every time you obey Jesus, he's always doing five other good things. And every time you disobey Jesus, there's always 20 unintended consequences you didn't intend that are making things worse. That's why we do a lot of stuff out of obedience, even if we don't understand the strategic details, right? This is also true of things like temp temperament and experience. Like our church has become a refugee camp for both like charismatic Christians and fundamentalist Christians. People are like, I got to get out of this movement. And they've come here and they've brought a lot of their beliefs here and we all have to get along in this church. And whenever I say anything authoritative, I'm like, okay, I'm going to lead. A lot of people came out of like fundamentalist backgrounds are kind of like, whoa, 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 that could be abuse because they were in highly authoritative churches oftentimes where there was spiritual abuse, right? But I still have to lead. Or sometimes, like, if I get a little feely, some people are like, are you going charismatic? Or if I don't, like, say I speak in tongues, people are like, do you even believe in the Holy Spirit? And like, look, I believe in everything Jesus tells me to believe in. I please him, I serve you, right? And this is also true of cultures and traditions. Like, listen, the, the, the Orthodox Church can say all day long, that I'm going to hell because I'm a schismatic Protestant. But I love them. You know what I mean? Like, I believe that there are believers in the Greek Orthodox and Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And the Catholic Church can profoundly disapprove of me, and I can still approve of some of them. And say, I think they're true believers devoted to Jesus, heart, soul, and mind. They believe some doctrines I think are bad, very unhelpful, and I wish we could cure, right? But nonetheless, I believe that Jesus accepts people who believe a lot of error, including people like me. And so— God judges those folks. I'm going to encourage their faith as much as possible and tell them the truth. Hopefully correct what I think is error. If you go on the other podcast, I'm on the Optive one. I had an hour and 40 minute argument with a Catholic scholar the other day, which I thought was very erenic and helpful. But I was in no uncertain terms what I thought was wrong. 
and he to me. But we both acknowledge to a certain extent the other person's goodwill. Right? And our church is committed to that. The region, our church, other traditions, other experiences, other temperaments, other ethnicities, both genders, all generations. For and to all generations. That's got to be our identity. I've said this about the regional church. I'm going to skip that. Let me say just one last bit on this. Especially since the Martin Luther King holidays is coming Sunday. I would like to preach a whole sermon on this, but I'm not going to. Sometimes to pursue a larger future unity, you do have to make some waves for people who really feel like they're on the outside. You have to make things difficult and somewhat contentious for the majority of the present to really try to reach people who are not present. The Bible teaches us that there are people, and I don't know if disenfranchised is the right word or not, but there are people that the way the world normally works, they just get a broad deal and they get left out. Okay? The fatherless. Widows. I think you can include single moms in widows. Okay? There are some differences, obviously, but there's a lot similarly in this way, right? Refugees. Like, you could go on. There's like a list that you go to. These are people who like, just the way things normally work, they're not in the incumbency. They're not connected. They're not on the inside for some reason or another. They're just not treated the same way. And what the Bible teaches is that that's what normally happens. And if we want to pursue the kind of spirituality God is calling us to, we kind of have to go out of our way to make sure those people get included in the family of God. Well, one of the reasons, for example, we started the Oaks Ministry is for people at High Point who are like, look, Nick, I like High Point Church, and it's a cool church. Like, it's, it's got a lot of great stuff going on, and you really believe in the scriptures and in Jesus, and I see the Spirit moving there. But man, the people there are just like way too freaking functional. They just like, you know, we're a small group, and somebody like, they talk about their sins, and it's like, you know, like they, they only worked out three times this week. You know, it's just like, or they, like, they, they didn't read their Bible for six days. And it's like, you know, and it's just like, listen, my Thursday was not, I didn't read my Bible. I ate three cakes and threw them up into our, my toilet. And then I like went online and looked at a lot of porn because I felt really bad. And then I like called up my mom and told her I hate her, hated her. And that's, that was my Thursday. And I, there's no place for me here. <laughs> and I feel, you know how it makes me feel as a pastor? I cannot tell you how terrible that makes me feel as a pastor. I have this vision in my mind, and I'm not saying it's a spiritual vision God gave me. It's just a metaphor that I've had in my head for years of the old, like, in the Dr. Zhivago era of, like, this train just kind of slowly starting to leave the station. And there's, there's, I, in my mind, it's a woman. She's running in this kind of, like, tattered overcoat with two really heavy suitcases, and she's trying to catch the train. And she just isn't going to catch it. She's just got too much baggage. The train is, is accelerating faster than she can get to it, and she's just going to miss it. And she's going to be just left on that platform for God knows how long, for who knows who to help her. And, it, that I, and I see that in my mind's eye, and it breaks my heart. And I, I don't know who that person is, or it's probably thousands of people. But I want this church to be a church that, like, somebody runs up and grabs those bags from her, and she, like, makes it on the train. And so that's why, like, we started Oaks as a specific healing ministry with, like, support groups and, and like, and, like, we create, we're, we're, like, training advocates who, like, know how to listen to people who are, like, having repetitive, very difficult struggles. But, but that kind of heart, that dynamic has to be much broader to be a place of healing. And normally I want to throw up when I say this word, but I mean it. Inclusion. In the literal sense of that word, like, people are 
feel included. And I don't mean it with all of its political connotations. I mean it spiritually and humanly in relationship to love. I just need to stop. Let's pray. I think, I don't think we're doing music. We'll see what happens when I open my eyes. Lord, um, we want to be a great local church. We want when people to see us, we want them to see what the local church was meant to be. We want people who were driven from their local church because it was broken and dysfunctional or because they were too immature to see the good in it to come here and find a home and to see you as you are. We want people to say that's what it was meant to be. We want younger people to be inspired that like, though this is an incredibly imperfect place with all these weird human beings, that they found something real because at some point you gave them eyes to see what was really happening. The ordinary, incredible things that you were doing through this local church. Stuff they didn't even know about when they were growing up. And then to realize that there were like kids that didn't starve during COVID in India. And there were pastors that got trained that reached thousands. And that, that, that we, we honored what was good and that things of ordinary beauty flourished. And that people who felt left out were really included. And the people who had problems they never thought they would get over. And they thought they would never have close friends because of it. Found both. We want, and so God, give us an emotional vision and help us to feel something like these are our brothers and sisters. This is our love and our longing. These people are our joy and our crown. And help us in the middle of it to hear your voice. I beseech you, get along. Have one mind. And help us to help each other to the kind of oneness with which together we can contend for the faith of the gospel. In Jesus' name.